0: Hi everyone, this is Jacob coming to you from Attention to Detail. As we mentioned yesterday, I am coming to you solo here for the next several days due to a little bit of self-quarantining because of the coronavirus. So for the next 10 days, as we mentioned briefly yesterday, we're gonna be doing some breakdowns of the 10, almost 10 Mahler symphonies, and we'll go in order. And so today let's dive right in with the first, one of the most well-known of the 10, certainly one of the most popular, uh, a piece that's stunning. It's, it's, It's an absolutely incredible symphony, and one of the most incredible things about the first is that it's in fact the first. Mahler wrote this piece in 1888. It's, it's unclear whether this was his absolute first dive into pure symphonic composition. He had written for orchestra before in the form of some song cycles, but regardless of whether this was his first attempt at a true symphony or not, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, not many composers can ever write a good symphony, let alone on their first attempt. And so this piece is, is, you know, maybe one of the top 10 symphonies ever composed by itself, but it's it's incredible that he was able to do that on his his first attempt. The symphony also begins what we might call the early period of Mahler's symphonic composition. As we go through these 10 symphonies, we'll talk about the early middle and late periods this is the first of the four symphonies that historians theorists usually call his his early symphonies and in this piece in addition to a lot of really interesting music we'll we'll start to see a lot of characteristics of mahler's composition this piece in particular shows his his penchant for self quotation and quoting other composers this is something that will come up again and again in the works of Mahler is the idea of self quotation from other works or from other symphonies and as this is the first symphony he has no other symphonies to quote from but he does have his song cycles and we'll look a little bit at that but it's a really interesting phenomenon how much he self quotes because in a way he ties his own symphonic output together Through these self-quotations and in addition to each of his symphonies being their own unique world, narrative thread, they also seem to connect to each other in in many interesting ways. So we'll explore that not so much today but but in in future breakdowns. The piece was originally performed in 1890 and the premiere was a disaster. it, it didn't go over well. It was premiered in Budapest or originally, where Muller was working at the time, and it just was not a success. So he put the piece away for three years, and then he came back to it when he had gotten another job in Hamburg, Germany, and edited it three years later. And over the course of these two semi-premiers, the first one, an actual premiere, and then the, the premiere of the edited version... And then continuing after, Mahler made several substantial edits to the piece. And so the form that we find the piece in today is actually very different from what the form of the piece was when it was first heard in Budapest in 1890. And I want to talk a little bit about the the program of the piece, because one thing we talked about, if you listened yesterday when we just announced we were, we were going to be doing this, is... The fact that Mahler's music really expertly, interestingly, threads the line between programmatic and absolute music, and this symphony is an excellent example. Programmatic music, as I'll remind our listeners again, is music with a, with a story, music with an external narrative. Absolute music is music that stands alone. It doesn't have a specific story left to our own interpretation. And this, interestingly, Mahler himself was kind of trying to decide how he felt about this symphony, whether this was in fact a programmatic symphony or not over the course of these edits. In the first, in the premiere uh, in Budapest, the piece was called A Symphonic Poem in Two Parts. It had no, no program attached to it. It just had first and second section, and the movements were titled by their tempi, introduction and allegro comodo, andante scherzo, so on. He changed it for the Hamburg program, and now it was called Titan, a tone poem in symphonic form. So now we actually have a name to the symphony, a name that's sometimes still attached, the name of Titan. And not only that, but each of the movements have very descriptive titles in this 1893 version. I'll I'll read the English titles instead of the... German to, to, to help our listeners but From the Days of Youth is the first movement the, the second movement is um, oh the first part is From the Days of Youth the first movement is Spring and No End the second movement doesn't really have a descriptive title but it was called the Blumine movement the the scherzo movement was called Under Full Sail and then a very big program for the third, then fourth movement, it's called Stranded, Death March in Calat's Manor, and there's a very long description of the program of this mu- movement, which we will review when we get to that, that movement, and then the last movement, Del Inferno, the, the Inferno, which again would, would change a little bit, and so in this second performance in 1893, we had a very, very specific program. Then he tinkered with it even further. He took away a lot of the descriptions of these movements and he pared it down just to their names of spring with no end and under full sail and things like that. It was still in two parts. And then by 1896, he had edited it yet further and he actually cut out an entire movement, the Blumine movement, taking it from five movements to four, removing the idea that this was a symphonic poem in two parts and instead just calling it his first symphony. And so this piece underwent an enormous number of changes and in the form that we hear it now, we're left thinking, contemplating how much of this program we should try to hear, how much this affects our the narrative of the entire piece and that's something we'll talk about as we break down each individual movement. We should say from the outset, I think a good approach, if you're following these breakdowns with us and you don't know these pieces particularly well, I'd encourage you to go listen to a movement, just hear it through one time so you know a little bit about what we're talking about here, and then we'll go through, break it down. We'll still play musical clips and everything, but obviously we can't listen to the full symphony of every Mahler symphony. That would take way too long. And so... If you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to listen once first to a movement and then come back, pause the podcast, come back and and listen to the movement breakdown. We'll put all of the timestamps of where we start talking about each movement in the description so that you have a nice little easy way to come back if you've listened to the second movement. Just click the timestamp of the second movement and you can start right there. So with that, let's, let's jump in and begin talking about the first movement. So the first movement we start with this piece that Mahler himself called Spring and No End is, is the title that seemed to remain through most of the the revisions of the symphony but also at one point he described this in one of the programs as awakening of nature from a winter's slumber or something so that's what we experience in in spring and fittingly a lot of this movement is filled with with nature sounds and the sounds of youthfulness of joy all of what spring is meant to represent on a more metaphorical level we start with this incredible introduction what a way to open your first symphony and i want to play for you the the introduction of this uh this symphony and Someone once commented to me that this almost sounds like you hear this incredibly high whistling, what's called a harmonic in the violins. This was something that was actually edited and added by Mahler later for this effect. But it's almost that feeling when, you, uh, when you're when you standing in a field or something and it's so silent that you actually hear the ringing in your own ears a little bit. And then from there, Mahler, We'll talk about this a lot as we go through his symphonies, but but Mahler, in addition to being an incredibly creative and innovative composer, he also, I talked a little bit about yesterday how the philosopher Adorno, who was one of the the greatest analysts of Mahler, said he was not really he was opposed to formalism or kind of the standards of musical composition that had been set in. In years prior to him and that would come in years after him. And this is not actually uh, entirely true. And we'll see in examples like this opening, Mahler uses a technique here that's so familiar to composers of Beethoven and Brahms and the like, he'll introduce a tiny little musical idea, what's called a descending fourth that you'll hear. And this musical idea ends up being the germ for basically the entire symphony, and we hear it in its most pure, basic, essential form. So here's this fantastic, vivid, quiet opening of of the first movement. So we hear the the woodwinds over this whistling play this idea of the descending fourth. We hear this come back, it, it gets, there's a couple descending fourths strung together to make one melodic idea. And interestingly, as I mentioned, this is a Beethovenian, Brahmsian technique. This idea Mahler took from this really short hidden passage in a Brahms symphony, and I want to play that for you because I mentioned this this notion that Mahler both self quotes and quotes other composers. It's very interesting. Just like Brahms had done prior to him, Brahms took a passage from, many passages from Beethoven and turned them into the ideas for his symphonies. Brahms' first symphony, for example, is entirely based off the motive from Beethoven's fifth symphony And similarly, it's like Mahler is continuing the Austro-Germanic tradition of composing, taking this tiny little uh, germ of an idea from the middle of a Brahms symphony and turning it into his entire first symphony. So we hear that motif in the middle of the Brahms symphony that that turns into the, the seed for this entire first movement and in fact the entire piece. So after we're introduced to this purely musical idea, we start to hear what we might consider much more programmatic music. We actually hear the sounds of birds of nature awakening from some sort of sleep. And this is a very vivid introductory, introductory passage to the first movement. Let me play for you a couple of these, these nature sounds as we hear flowers start to bloom and birds start to come out again. It's a very evocative and picturesque passage of music. So once we've finished this introduction, we actually come like we'd expect from a symphonic first movement. Here's why Mahler is still something of a formalist, is because the standard mode of composition for the Austro-Germans is to write what's called a sonata in the first movement, a sonata form. And that's exactly what we get. We get a slow introduction, and then we hear what's called a sonata form, where we've talked about it some on this podcast in the past two themes are introduced they're contrasted they're developed and so and the tempo usually picks up here and so that's exactly what happens it's still very much a spring youthful theme but we hear this this first theme introduced in the cellos that signals the start of the main portion the fast portion of this first movement here's how that theme goes we still hear from earlier that that descending forth that has been turned into the sound of a bird some sort of cuckoo or something that continues to play throughout this movement. It's an excellent transformation of what was originally this kind of eerie musical motive into a pure nature sound. And here also, in this first theme, we get Mahler's first self-quotation. He actually took this melody from a song as part of the lieder eines and gazellin a song cycle that he had composed earlier. And I want to play for you just a little bit of that, that song from, the second song from that cycle, and you'll notice how strikingly similar it is to the opening of the sonata portion of this first movement.
1: morgen auf sprach zu mir der ein
0: So when Mahler self-quotes like this, it's always interesting to look at the text of what he's self-quoting in addition to the music. The music certainly sounds pastoral, celebration of nature, and that's exactly what the the text of this song is as well. The, the title is Went This Morning Across a Field, that's the, the first line, but the singer talks about how much I like this world so much, He's reveling in the beauties of of nature, so it's filled with with optimism, with joy. This will be important to know in the context of the program of this entire symphony when later everything kind of hits the fan and it becomes significantly more more pessimistic. So uh, we we get we hear the themes that are associated with what's called the exposition of a sonata form and then, the next thing we're charged with doing in, in formalist terms is to develop these ideas. And so we arrive at the development and we come back to a passage that harkens back to the beginning of this entire symphony. It's something that we might not expect, but suddenly we're transported back to the opening of the symphony. And I want to play for you a little bit of that passage now. So we hear these nature sounds again, and if you listen along to the full piece, we won't play it all now, but the music takes a little bit of a turn towards more pessimism, but then we get some, some development of themes like we might expect. And it's moments like the one that we just heard and especially the one that I'm going to play for you now that are also very important in Mahler because one of the most... Striking, innovative, interesting things that Mahler does in literally every one of his symphonies is the idea of something called what Adorno, who we'll refer to probably many times over the course of the next ten days, called a Durchbruch, which in German means breakthrough. And it's this idea that there are moments where, in the form, we're in the middle of the development, and we expect the two themes that we've heard to be developed. And then at a certain point, we're going to come to a recapitulation where we come back to the music of, of what we heard, this, this song quote, and we'll recap all that music again and then go to a nice finish. And in these breakthrough moments, Mahler literally breaks through the, the form that, that has been set up for, for hundreds of years leading up to him. And shows us glimpses into either other worlds or sometimes these breakthroughs take the form of kind of glimpses into heaven, we might say, or some sort of uh, mystical place. Other times these breakthroughs will take the form of like complete suspension of the action and a moment to pause and, and meditate. But these are... These moments, these breakthrough moments are really, really key to Mahler and whenever they happen, they mean something very important. So we had a little bit of one there where we looked back to the music of the opening, but a big one here, I'll play this for you and then we'll we'll discuss it a little bit. So the thing about Mahlerian breakthroughs is that usually you can really recognize them, right? You you get this music, suddenly it becomes very ominous and foreboding, and we hear it building to something, and then there's this huge climax outburst as is so characteristic of Mahler, and we hear music that doesn't belong in this first movement, and right now we really don't know what this music is. All we know is that... In the middle of this development section, instead of coming to the recap, we've heard this very foreboding music that then bursts into some sort of triumph. Notably, this is not necessarily important, I'll just tell you, it's in the key of D major, which we don't need to even know what that means, but that will play an important role in what Mahler is trying to do later in this symphony. So... We'll table that for now, because at the moment, we don't know what that music is meant to signify. But then, after we get that breakthrough movement, we we get a recapitulation, as we might expect. The music, a lot of these themes come back. It gets increasingly more exuberant, and it ends with this phenomenal coda to the movement. The, a coda is a little ending section that we might expect, where it really wraps up, accelerates... This is a fantastic coda. We won't listen to it here, but of course, I encourage you to listen to the whole movement. It's a super exciting ending to the, to the first movement. So that's what we have there, a picture of spring, youth, awakening, but also a real, what we might call sonata form and uh, something that says a lot of things that say, listen, I'm going to write symphonies in forms that have been set up prior to me. But like any great innovator, I'm going to change some things. I'm going to have breakthrough moments. This is a long sonata form with a super long introduction. And he doesn't really use the two themes in the way that a lot of composers do. So throughout Mahler's work, we're going to see this. A lot of adherence to historic formalism, and also a lot of innovation out of what Adorno, I think, called something like interest in the music itself rather than the means of, of composition. So let's move on. We'll quickly review the second movement. This is the shortest movement and also not, not any less good than any of the others, but maybe the least for us to talk about. But let's look a little bit at the second movement, which is the scherzo movement, which which we expect in a symphony, either in the second or third slot. In those two slots, we usually expect a slow and a scherzo movement. And as will be characteristic of so many Mahler scherzi, which are really interesting uh, movements, all of the scherzos of the Mahler symphonies are interesting. There's elements of folk music, there's elements of his roots as a as a Eastern European, as an Austrian and this particular scherzo takes the form of, of both a waltz maybe, but also of what's called an Austrian lendler, this is a Austrian folk dance, somewhat similar to a waltz, but kind of a more rustic, country peasant version of a dance like that and I want to play for you an example of a Lendler, actually from, from the film The Sound of Music, when Maria is dancing with the uh, the captain. Is it maybe the captain? Whoever the... I, I saw this movie a long time ago, so I apologize for my lack of knowledge. Maybe it's the captain. But Maria dances with this, this captain, and uh, they dance... A Lendler, and it's it's an excellent illustration of exactly what type of music that is, so let's listen to a little bit of this Lendler from the sound of music. So they dance to that nice Lendler and triple meter one, two. Three. One, two, three. That's what we always expect from, from a Lendler. And here's the beginning of Mahler's second movement of this first symphony. Listen to some of the the similarities. <laughs> So it's quite a rustic dance. We hear this rhythm, bottom dum bottom, ba which we also kind of heard in the the Sound of Music, Lendo. That, that's the rhythm that's characteristic of this type of dance. And it has this very strong folk element, even from the outset. It sounds like peasants stomping around instead of some elegant dance. And that is something that Mahler was so fantastic at, was blending classes, taking the idea of an aristocratic waltz and making it a peasant dance and making this really humanitarian music that that speaks to maybe a wider audience or a wider range of experience and, you know, this is a symphony, the ultimate display of refinement and class potentially and you'll find, we will find throughout Mahler especially coming in the next movement of the symphony and and on all of these moments where he breaks that and uses sounds, music that is, is feels out of place. If, if we had our nose in the air and, and we're going to say, listen, this is pure classical music. This is for the aristocracy. This is refined. Mahler really breaks so much of that mold First, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, though. We have to listen to... Usually, scherzo movements have what a, a scherzo section, what we just heard, and also a trio. And the trio of this uh, this second movement is also a Lendler. It's a much slower Lendler. But also, it's an interesting one. And I'll, I'll play this for you. And I want you to listen to... I, I like this performance, particularly. This is Leonard Bernstein's recording, one of the most famous Mahler conductors. And I like what he, he does in this trio section because it's, it's exceedingly sappy and melodramatic in a way. Here's, here's the trio of the, the second movement. A lot of that saccharine quality, that sappiness of that performance is, is marked in the score by Mahler, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, especially when I have some of my conductor friends or performer friends potentially call in and help me break some of these down, but the markings that Mahler gives us are really specific and really interesting, and so all of these swells, all of these things that feel a little off-kilter, a little overdramatic, are put in the score because he wants to... He's always interested in dualisms of... The, you know, this, this this is such a refined waltz, maybe Lendler type of music, and yet he's added this almost soap opera quality of how it's supposed to be performed. So... With that, I mean, this is a fantastic movement, but there's less to talk about. This, I'm wary that that this breakdown doesn't spill into an hour and a half type of territory. So we'll we'll move on to the third movement. <clears throat> we go from uh, optimistic second movement and first movement to the pain tragedy irony, sadness of the third and part of the fourth. If we think about that program that we talked about at the beginning for the symphony, it was originally in two parts, and here was the dividing line, so we've had the optimism of the first half, if we want to think about it in that way still, and now we've shifted to the pessimism, drama, tragedy of the second half. Now this movement, this third movement in and of itself has an interesting possible program, it's called Funeral March in Calot's Manor. Um, you can you can do a little research if you want to on on what that all of what that entails. But Mahler talked about this movement. There's there's several quotes from Mahler about this movement. He talked about how, in one way, the program of this movement is a tragic hero, potentially the the hero of Jean Paul's novel Titan, which is. Where this name comes from, but we don't actually. That program of of the connection between this this symphony and the and the novel is is kind of ambiguous, and so we don't necessarily need to think in those terms. But <clears throat> a tragic hero wandering in pain as amateur bands, uh, musicians walk past him, and he's in this. He's in this existential pain feeling the weight of the world on his shoulder and there's this intense irony with these makeshift, raggedy amateur bands playing all of this jovial over-the-top folk music while this, this tragic hero is wandering in his intense and in theory profound suffering. Mahler also offered up the idea that this movement could be based on a painting called Des Jaegers Lichen Begangnis, which <laughs> the it's an engraving of animals who are in this kind of funeral profe- procession, and it's it's supposed to be a somewhat ironic engraving. It takes what's supposed to be a very ritualistic, holy funeral pr- procession, and there's all these animals laughing and and. Uh, making a mockery of this event and so we can think of something like that potentially as well he gave very conflicting reports on the actual program of this movement like most of his works but i think again it was purposeful and it's because his music really threads the line between absolute and and program music so talk a little bit about the actual music the opening you will almost certainly recognize Mahler uses, uh, we hear the a pulse of a funeral march from the timpani, but Mahler uses a, a famous German folk song, which we also have here in, in France, Frere Jacques. <clears throat> in, in Germany, this is called Bruder Martin, but he's changed it from the standard major mode to minor mode to give it this particularly sad, pessimistic quality. So here's the opening where we hear... Frere Jacques played interestingly by a solo double bass player an interesting choice in and of itself that that is a solo that's going to be it's always challenging for the bass player to play and Mahler intended that he meant for it to almost sound strained it's a difficult high register on the bass and it doesn't really sound it would be much easier played on the cello for example but he did this intentionally to give it this kind of pained strained quality. hear this uh, Farajaka theme many, many times and the timpani continues to play this march rhythm. We can imagine our our hero, if we want to imagine that walking along in some sort of, or we can imagine a funeral procession. And then we come to these amateur folk bands that provide the real irony, the tragic irony of the scene. The, The hero is feeling the full weight of the world on his or her shoulders and and then we get this almost tragically comically banal uh, music. And so let's hear one of those passages. Here, interestingly, here's yet another fascinating element of Mahler's music is that he was he was Jewish by by upbringing, and he brings a lot of the klezmer Jewish folk tunes, or the history of this this folk culture into his music into what had primarily been either a entirely secular or somewhat christian-centric genre of classical music and here we get we hear jewish folk tunes in in uh incorporated into a genre where we're we're not uh expecting that necessarily and so here's Here's a klezmer band that just waltzes onto the scene. It's a it's a fantastic moment in this in this movement. So after this klezmer band waltzes onto the scene, we hear this, again, kind of over, me, overly melodramatic music that provides this tragic irony, sardonicism, again, that, that is so powerful. The, the composer Robert Schumann actually said, said, far before this was composed, he has a great quote, for a few moments in eternity, poetry has put on the mask of irony in order for her pain-grieved face not to be seen and i think that's why this music is so powerful is the contrast of of emotions this heightened sense of tragedy and then almost laughing at it because it's it's so so tragic so then like the second movement, we get something what's called a trio or a, a trio is just a, a word in music for a, a B section. If we have an A section, when it, a lot of musical forms go A, B, A. And so here we get the B section of this movement and the tone shifts very dramatically. We go from minor to major and we hear this incredibly peaceful, placid music. I'll play a little bit of that for you now. Here we've come again. Whenever there's music that uh, feels feels like it needs an explanation, usually that's a self quotation from Mahler, and this this again is a a self quotation. This is from another one of his songs. I want to play for you a little bit of that song as well, um, and you'll just hear hear the striking similarity. And just like just like we did before, it's important to look at what the text of this song is to give us maybe a clue as to why we, we've suddenly stumbled across this incredibly peaceful music. This, this song is Die zwei blauen Augen, the, the two blue eyes. It's got a longer title, but, but I'll spare you that. But here's a little bit of the music from, from, from this song. So the the text of this song, this moment, um, is is about a traveler finding a, a linden tree. the The linden tree was a is a very iconic and important image in German Romanticism. Schubert wrote a lot of famous songs, Der Lindenbaum, about linden trees, and the the traveler finds peace, tranquility under the linden tree some people interpret that as a as a metaphor for essentially the the eternal peace of of death and and rest um we're left to interpret that however we want but one way or another we've we've come to this point of peace and acceptance in the face of all of this this tragedy for a brief moment of of respite but then We go back and we once again get the the funeral procession again now a little bit higher it's a half step higher it's shifted up just a little bit it feels even a little more off and haunting and i just want to play for you my favorite passage of the movement again we get an even more rambunctious klezmer band that bursts on the scene this time filled with a percussion section and everything it really crashes onto the scene another one of these short but interesting breakthrough moments of mahler where we're just going along in a funeral procession and something crashes through the musical fabric and and disturbs everything that has been set up before This reminds me a little bit of the Cantina band from Star Wars, something like that. It's it's such a rambunctious and almost jazzy uh, little amateur band that's that's stumbled on us here. So then the funeral procession recedes and and the movement ends and we're left with this. We've been, we've been left with this kind of tragic irony and extreme picture of of pain and sadness. And so then we come to the fourth movement, my favorite, everyone's favorite, the, the culmination of all the drama of this program, of the symphony. The final title of this uh, fourth movement is Dall'Inferno al Paradiso. First it was just dall'inferno Inferno, but from, it's an allusion to Dante, but the idea of from uh, the inferno to paradise, struggle to triumph, a really popular narrative structure, especially for a last movement. And we have some quotes from Mahler about this movement as well. He said at one point, the hero faces all the sadness and tragedy in the world. This is supposed to represent some sort of battle where at the moment the hero feels as close to victory, he is actually the furthest away. It's kind of this battle within himself against... The, the weight of the world, of his intense sadness and tragedy, all of that naivete and optimism from his youth has has gone away. And only in death, when he be, has become victorious over himself, this is what Mahler says, does he actually achieve victory and, and is able to once again... uh potentially be happy or, or optimistic or something like that. So we're set up to, to hear this very dramatic battle um, between pain and suffering and, and a attempt, attempts to reach triumph, optimism, something like that. So uh, incredible scene to open this movement. We hear really effectively a battle. Here's how this this stormy movement opens. So we hear a lot of Storm, Inferno-type music in the opening, but interestingly, again, I, I disagree with, with Adorno on, on the notion that Mahler was not a formalist, because even in the most dramatic tone-poem-esque of finales, style of finales, we get another sonata form, which is to be expected also in a lot of last movements, and so from this stormy, tumultuous theme music, we get what we would expect from a secondary theme, which is a more lyrical, more inward theme. Mahler really takes this to the extreme. The 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 historian Richard Taruskin, who's written the the most comprehensive Oxford history of Western music, if you've got a enormous amount of free time on your hands you could you could check that out and give that a read that will really occupy you for this entire coronavirus apocalypse we have here but Taruskin talks about how Mahler and a couple of his contemporaries were really maximalists they took everything to the biggest extreme they could and you'll hear in this second theme a maximum contrast from the stormy music it's this intensely lyrical love theme that in its own way is, represents the, the sadness, the weight of the world on this, this tragic hero, but in a very different way from the battle-stormy music of, of earlier. now we've come to where things start really heating us heating up for us now and at the end of we come to the end of this theme the end of what's called the exposition in the sonata form and we get this recall back to the the slow introduction of the first movement and again we're we're starting to kind of you can almost see the the hero slipping between psychological states, remembering, seeing his life flash before his, his or her eyes or something like that. And we're shifting between these different worlds of the first movement and now of this very pessimistic, inferno-type movement. And so we slip back into the, the music of this opening. We hear that descending forth motif again. Here's a little bit of, of that passage. So there the music swells. We, we hear that kind of ominous recomposition of the opening of the first movement, and then we explode into what's called, again, the development, and we hear more storm music as it's developed, it's altered, it's it's uh, tweaked, and and but we hear more and more of this stormy, inferno music. And then we get here's where it starts to get really really exciting and interesting we we get a breakthrough moment in the middle of this development just like we had in the in the first movement. but this is it's a different type of breakthrough this is not some malarian breakthroughs are super loud and and exciting this one this first one is very soft and a little bit masked and and almost it it happens quickly we almost don't even notice before it it goes by, but we hear the first appearance of what will come become clear to us is a sort of victory motif, victory idea. And we hear it in the wrong key, we hear it in C major. As I mentioned earlier, we we had a breakthrough in the first movement that went to D major. I want us to keep that in our minds, we don't need to be able to recognize those keys. But right now we're in C major, a different key, one step lower than D major, and we hear this victory motif for the first time, very distant, as though it's very far away and still unattainable for us at this moment. So it happens fast and then we transition back to more of the stormy music, but it's an incredibly important moment. It's our first little window into what will come. And so then we get some more stormy music and then we get a more obvious one. As I mentioned, Mahler had a quote about the program of this this movement saying that just when the hero thinks he or she is closest to victory. That's actually when they're furthest away. And here's what's going to happen is we're going to have these, these breakthroughs and these attempts to, to achieve triumph, and, and they'll be quashed. And so we heard one in C major. That was the wrong key, and it was soft, and it was just fleeting. Now we get one in D major, the key that we're really trying to attain. And I'll play that one for you. This one is much more of a real breakthrough, but again at the end spoiler alert quashed so here's the the second breakthrough victory motif You hear there's a there's a moment in there where we're in C major, and then suddenly it just blasts, shifts to what we call D major in this big explosion. Uh, these keys again are not important for our listeners necessarily to know, but it reminds me of <laughs> you know music nerds. If if you ask a, a music nerd to throw on a, a song, a popular song at a party, many of them will put on Beyonce's love on top because this is a piece that maybe a song that six, seven times in a row does what's called a modulation where it just jumps up a key. If you know that song, you know this experience of just suddenly jumping up a little bit higher. And that's exactly what Mahler is doing here. It's just out of nowhere, whoops, we we slipped into the, the key we're trying to achieve. And so by that alone it feels disingenuous. We know that this is not going to be the ultimate triumph. We've we've gotten there too easily. We need to go through even more struggle to organically achieve this this key of D major to, to arrive at the moment of of ultimate triumph. So we hear this motif this victory motif again, bum 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 and that is gonna be really important. But then again we mentioned the music kind of fizzles out And we get this, now we're really shifting psychological states and and moving between different worlds, and we get this recollection of childhood. And that harkens back, of course, to the first movement, which is supposed to represent this spring awakening of nature. The hero is, is remembering back to the naivete, the optimism of... Of his or her childhood. And so let's hear a little bit of that recalling of the music that you may recognize from the first movement. So we hear those same birds, the same falling-forths motif that we heard in, uh, in the first movement, and it's almost like this, this recalling, this trip back down memory lane, back to the youth naivete of the first movement is what will ultimately bring us this eternal peace, this triumph over self, and finally wash away all the tragedy of, of the real world and help us to achieve whatever this the end goal of the symphony may be, death and rest in heaven, or some sort of personal triumph that's left up to our own interpretation, but this Harkening back to the first movement this trip to an entirely different musical world is what initiates the final Push towards towards the end. We still have to go Through some of the inferno music again. We go through this even more struggle But but the inferno music has taken on a new character now. It's no longer that bombastic incredibly aggressive uh, music from the stormy music from the opening of this movement and then we get to the moment that that will ultimately bring us to the end of this symphony. And it's music that we've heard before. This is one of the master strokes of Mahler. We hear the same exact build. I pointed it out to you much earlier in the first movement where we got this breakthrough moment and this vision of what's to come. And we hear exactly that same music again. And this time we're going to break through and instead of going on to this exciting, nature-pastoral-filled coda of the first movement will achieve the ultimate victory of of this symphony. It's something that Mahler does so expertly in so many of his symphonies, where he gives us a glimpse of what's to come, foreshadowing, just like like the great filmmakers or the great novelists, but then we know there's so much more transformation. We have to go through this entire tragedy of the third movement the entire inferno storm of the fourth movement to actually get there genuinely and to achieve this this ultimate triumph. So let's let's listen to that identical passage here in the fourth movement from the first movement and how it changes. And instead of going on to the, the spring awakening music of the first movement, it goes into this victory motif that we've been prepped to hear twice already in the one last triumphant finale to this this symphony and we don't want to spoil the very ending I think it's something you should listen to on your own uh, it's one of the greatest endings in all of symphonic music, It's he's taken we hear bum, 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 bum. this is the, the descending fourths motif that we've heard at the very beginning of this symphony and he's blended it with this victory motif bum, 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 bum. this victory motif actually is a not a self quotation but a uh, external quotation to the music of of Wagner, from Parsifal or uh, more broadly, it's this this theme called the Dresden Amen, which is an ancient uh, symbol of the cross or of religiosity. And so again, it's int- this is a really interesting kind of quasi-religious allegory that comes in here at the end. We heard the Jewish music of the uh, in the third movement and now we hear, music with Christian connotations coming at this moment where we're potentially uh, ascending to heaven. Religion is a really interesting uh, element of Mahler's life, which we will talk about more as we get into his later symphonies. But whatever the message of this ending may be, it's, it's staggeringly uplifting, phenomenal uh, to listen to, especially live the entire horn section is instructed in the score to stand up at this at this moment and it's it, the visual is incredible along with with just the triumph of this opening and that's what ultimately wraps this fantastic first symphony. I'm very aware that this has has bled into over an hour and these are long symphonies but we're going to try to keep them to about these breakdowns to about an hour. I hope you have enjoyed not only this, but also listening to Mahler's first symphony. I think it's a great one to start with because it shows so many of his uh, his characteristics that we'll, we'll see throughout the course of this Mahler cycle in understandable and palatable and approachable ways. And it's also just such a fun piece to listen to. So, happy listening. I hope you all enjoy it. And... Of course, if, if there's one Mahler symphony that you may want to join us for, it will be tomorrow's, which is the second symphony, the Resurrection Symphony. I'm going to see if I can rope one of my... It shouldn't be hard, because this is one maybe the greatest symphony ever composed. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get someone to call in and help me break it down. But tomorrow we'll be back with you with with Mahler's incredible Resurrection Symphony. If, if, if you want a ending that... If you're looking for an ending that could possibly top the ending of the first symphony, look no further than his second. He, he outdid himself. So we'll be back with you tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening, as always, and, and stay healthy out there.